Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome you to our most recent podcast. I'm especially happy to welcome our guest today, Walter Willett, um, a scientist and scholar and expert in the area of nutrition for whom I've had great admiration for years and years. Walter is the chair of the Department of Nutrition and also the Frederick John Stair Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. And Walter, as much in my opinion as any scientist in the world, has made a real difference in what the nation is eating. Uh, He's a fiercely good scientist, has published dozens and dozens and dozens, and that's an understatement of really very well-controlled studies over the years but has taken the unusual step for scientists of trying to take the science and turn it into social action, turn it into health recommendations and health changes that will really make a difference in the health of not only the nation but the world. So, Walter, I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. It's really nice to be with you. So over the years, you've made a number of impressive victories in uh, alerting people to parts of the diet that may harm or help their health. And this has been translated into real-world action. And one of the most uh, interesting exemplars of that is trans fat. And if we look at where we started with trans fat, nobody knew what it was. It was sort of an obscure, difficult-to-understand concept. Not many people were studying it. To where we are now today, where no trans fats in New York City restaurants, the country of Denmark has banned trans fats. A lot of states around the country are considering doing something uh, it's an amazing transition. And from point A to point B, there are a number of steps there. But why don't we start with the science? Tell us a little bit about the science on trans fat and what it does and what effect it has on people's health. Sure, Kelly. Uh, for us, this has been a pretty long road. That My interest in trans fat and our early work really started in the late 1970s. At that time, there were a small number of people who had been raising concerns about trans fat, but Really, there weren't much data uh, that were available at that time. And I became particularly concerned because the process that creates trans fats, which we call partial hydrogenation, starts with molecules in our natural oils that are essential for health and and, uh, even essential for being alive. Uh, These are the polyunsaturated fatty acids. And those have an exact shape that and their molecules are used to build up the structures of every cell in the body and also serve as the building blocks of many different hormones that are critical for life. And so when you change the shape of those molecules, as is done in the partial hydrogenation process, you will change their function, and uh, they will have effects on the structure of our cells, on the uh, creation uh, and perhaps catabolism of our hormones. And that's worrisome. It's not very predictable about what they could do, but you're going to be doing something major when you change those molecules. So we set in place several large prospective studies. The Nurses' Health Study was the first such cohort. Uh, This included almost 100,000 women where we began collecting data on intake of trans fat and other aspects of diet starting in 1980. And we followed those women along uh, up until now even. And by 1990, we saw that there was about an 80% higher risk of heart attacks in the women who were consuming the most trans fat compared to women consuming low amounts of trans fat. And that's that's a bigger increase. major difference. That's important. And at about the same time, some of my colleagues and 
in Holland were doing a series of studies where they took a small number, a few dozen healthy men and women, and for a few weeks put them on a high trans fat diet and compared that to a low trans fat diet. And they saw very worrisome changes in their blood cholesterol fractions. The bad cholesterol went up, the good cholesterol went down, and more recently uh, it's been seen that there are increases in, inflama in inflammatory factors that represent adverse changes all around the body. Other people then have looked as we did in large prospective studies and consistently they've confirmed what we saw, higher risk with higher trans fat intake. So when you put all that together, these multiple large prospective studies showing that trans fats are related to high risk of heart attacks and these controlled feeding studies showing adverse uh, metabolic effects over the short run, uh, then that makes a very strong case that trans fat has adverse effects on, on heart disease. More recently, we've also seen adverse effects of trans fat on risk of type 2 diabetes, infertility, uh, gallstones, and probably dementia as well. So these are really bad actors. They're not something people should be eating. And that's been recognized by every major national and international committee that's reviewed that during the last five years. So you've just taken years and years of science and nicely condensed it into about a two-minute discussion. But if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like the science on this is rock solid. At this point, the science is rock solid. Uh, at first, it was controversial, uh, but I don't think at this point in time there's anyone who doubts that trans fats are a serious health threat. What sort of foods are trans fats in? The source of trans fats has varied quite a bit over time. When we started back in 1980, margarine was by far the major source of trans fat. Then in the late 1980s, uh, the margarine manufacturers started to reduce the trans fats, and more recently they pretty much removed trans fats from margarine. So they're much better products than they were even uh, five or ten years ago. But in contrast, the fast food industry started uh, using trans fat as a primary cooking oil in the late 1980s. And so in recent years, fast foods uh, have been a huge source. And also commercial baked products have been the other main source of trans fats right up until this time. But just in the last year, with the bans on trans fat occurring in many major cities and now states, uh, the fast food uh, chains have almost all uh, removed trans fats, even some of those just within the last few weeks. So there's been huge changes occurring really invisibly to consumers, but uh, in some really good directions in the last couple of years. Uh, if a consumer wants to know what, f what should they look for if they want to identify trans fats? What should they look for in a food label? Uh, on the food label, now uh, there is a line that says trans fat, and you should want to see zero in that line. Uh, until very recently, I've told people stay away from uh, any commercial deep fried fast uh, food. Uh, now, in fact, that's changed. Those uh, in all the major chains are trans free. Now, at this point in time, uh, commercial baked products may or may not be trans free. And I think you have to assume that they do have trans fat unless you can find a label uh, that uh, says uh, zero grams trans fat or that there's no partially hydrogenated oils. Okay, so, and just to make it clear, in New York City, for example, where there's been a trans fat ban, it only applies to restaurants. So there still could be plenty of trans fats in other foods, potentially. Uh, in New York City, uh, actually, it's much nicer now. You don't have to worry about trans fats nearly as much as you did uh, a year ago. Uh, and Boston, I might add, too, is also trans-free uh, in restaurants. Uh, pretty much the only place that you're likely to get trans fats now are in commercial baked products. 
uh, if you go to the grocery store and, and where they have labels, you'll find the large majority are zero grams trans fat. And so even those are okay. Uh, there are some small restaurant chains in places that don't have a ban on trans fat that still do use trans fat. So uh, it, uh, if you're in New York, uh, you've got it easy, though. Why would the industry want to use trans fats in the first place? Trans fats were very convenient for several reasons. One is that the process took a liquid fat like corn oil or soybean oil and converted it into a hard fat that you could make look like lard or butter. And those were the basic fats in the Northern American food supply, Northern Europe uh, uh, food supply as well. And also trans fats were convenient because they have a, they create foods with a very long shelf life uh, because the uh, fats have been, uh, there are fewer double bonds in those fatty acids. And those double bonds, if they sit on the shelf and f foods for months, they can go rancid if the conditions are wrong. And so you have reliably very long shelf life uh, for foods if you use trans fat. But of course, our concern is your shelf life, my shelf life, not the Twinkies. Right. So, so something like a Twinkie or some kind of a pastry that's put inside a plastic pouch could um, last a very long time and, with the trans fat in it. And that is an advantage for the food industry because there's not spoilage and the shelf life means they can be shipped long distances and things like that. Exactly. It's a bit sobering, but the mainstream commercial food supply uh, depends on having a shelf life of six months. That's amazing. Uh, that's not exactly fresh food, but you can get away with that if you put a lot of trans fats into the supply. Now, there are some ways of doing that without trans fats. So uh, we don't have to totally remake the food supply. It would be nicer to have fresher foods in general, but uh, there are now many alternatives. So even if you want to have that really long shelf life, you can do it without trans fats. So with this large body of evidence linking trans fats to negative health outcomes, what's happening in the middle? What, is it, what do the trans fats do to the body that leads to heart attack deaths and things like that? Right. At the very basic level, we still don't understand exactly what trans fats are doing, but they are, and I'm working with molecular biologists who are now all of a sudden very interested in trans fats because it's clear that they're doing so many adverse things to our basic uh, cell biology. Uh, they are causing some deep uh, fundamental metabolic stress, and part of the response of, uh, to the trans fats is that inflammatory factors are produced by cells that is linked with insulin resistance. That, of course, is the basic uh, metabolic defect in uh, type 2 diabetes and why we're seeing an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. And uh, the low HDL cholesterol, the elevated triglycerides, there's many other uh, cholesterol fractions that change in adverse directions uh, when trans fats are consumed. Uh, so uh, there does seem to be a very fundamental metabolic stress with many manifestations. We pick it up as seeing many human diseases now. And um, I, this is going to keep the basic scientists, I think, uh, busy long after we've got trans fats out of the food supply. When you were talking about, um, we'll, we'll get in a minute to what are some of the big social change things that you've seen happen with trans fats. But along the way, I know in, in your scientific journey, from first worrying about the problem to really documenting that there was a relationship between trans fats and negative health outcomes, you encountered some resistance and some pushback from certain groups, some of them surprising groups. Could you explain a little bit about that? 
we did receive a lot of pushback. Some of it wasn't too surprising from the industries most affected, like the margarine industry, which is a which was a huge trans fat producer uh, in, in the 1980s. Uh, but also, um, surprisingly and somewhat depressingly, we got major pushback from American Heart Association, which should have been in the vanguard here. But part of the problem, I think, is psychological. A lot of people had made their careers off of telling people to eat margarine instead of butter. Turns out that was not a good choice. Uh, probably led to tens of thousands of premature deaths. Uh, so it, it's hard for a lot of people to turn around uh, when they had really good intentions in the beginning. Uh, but the industry wasn't monolithic, and I think that was in a, that was important. Uh, one of the European manufacturers, Unilever, early on did acknowledge that trans fats were a problem. And while the American producers were saying it's no problem, and besides we couldn't get trans fats out of our margarines anyway, they did it in Europe. And that erased the argument that it's not possible. And, and Unilever being the second largest food company in the world is a real player. This was a really important tipping point when Unilever uh, created trans-free margarines. And they, uh, they, they really are at the front. Uh, and that's made a difference in this country, too. Promise Margarine was one of their brands in this country. And when that went trans-free again, the, the other manufacturers could no longer maintain that it, it can't be done. No, I don't. I don't. This is a little bit off the topic, but we'll come back to it. Um, I don't know if this, my opinion, my perception here is consistent with yours, but it seems to me the European food companies are much more progressive than the American mm -hmm. ones in tackling this and other issues as well. That they seem to be out front at the same time the American companies are denying there's a problem. They're formula reformulating their products, where some of the American companies have dug in their heels. Does that sound right to you? Uh, sadly, that's been my perception as well. I haven't done a formal survey, but it, it seems actually quite clear that there's been a difference. I, my take on this, and again, I'm not an expert in corporate behavior, but uh, the, most of the European companies like Unilever are companies that are food companies. They're, they're going to be food companies. That's their essence. Whereas in many of the American companies, uh, actually for a while, all the major margarine brands were owned by tobacco companies. And it's you just um, don't uh, believe that their CEOs are getting out of their bed in the morning and saying, how could I make my products better for the American consumer? I, there's a real corporate mentality, I think, that's a problem that way. And then also, sadly, many of the American food companies are very short-term oriented. Uh, the switch over to trans fat-free margarines took uh, several years, hundreds of millions of dollars for Unilever to do that. Procter & Gamble was their main competitor because they made Crisco in this country. And they, they didn't invest in taking trans fats out of Crisco. Uh, their solution was to spin it off to another company and let them worry about it. And I, I think uh, that short-term uh, quarterly bottom line, plus uh, food companies being traded like baseball cards without uh, concern about the long-term investments and healthfulness of the products. I, I think that's created a corporate attitude that's very different than what I've been seeing operating in Europe. You know, your point about the food industry not being monolithic is interesting. And um, you and I both had, had experiences of, pr of particularly progressive people within the food mm -hmm. industry. And you get a sense of how much difference a single individual can make under those circumstances. And you've spoken about uh, your relationship with the person that heads uh, a prominent restaurant chain in the, in the Northeast, Legal Seafoods. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what sort of changes you've seen happen in that venue? 
Yes, that was another interesting example because uh, right across the board, almost all restaurants were using huge amounts of trans fats uh, during the 1990s. And uh, Roger Berkowitz, who has led Legal Seafood in Boston, uh, heard me give a talk a few years ago about trans fat. And he said, you know, it, it couldn't be that we're using trans fats. We are really concerned about health. I've health fish and health is, is right at the top of our agenda. And we use the best quality kosher oils for cooking. But he went back and looked at his packages and everything said partially hydrogenated vegetable fat. Um, and to his credit, uh, Roger invested a lot of time and energy and resources in finding alternatives. Uh, uh, he did blinded taste testings of different oils and found that actually he could identify cooking oils that were trans-free that people liked better. They were fresher, less, tasted less processed. Uh, and he banged at the door of the French fry producers because almost all the French fries are first prepared in huge big factories and par-fried in oils that are extremely high in trans fat. So they ship them out frozen to restaurants. Restaurants dump them in the fryerators again. And even if the restaurants are using a trans-free oil, uh, the fries are still going to be very high in trans fat. So Roger convinced a supplier to give him uh, French fries that had no trans in them. And uh, then uh, other uh, restaurants started asking for them. And uh, th that really... Uh, created a huge shift. Uh, and so often what I've seen is it took a small group or one person uh, showing that it can be done. What had been said to be impossible is possible. And then the argument has to change. So it's time and time again that pattern is I've seen re been reproduced. Let's try to fill in some more pieces mm -hmm. of the victory puzzle here. Um, you talk about, uh, so you went from just beginning the science to really having a mature science on the topic being attacked along the way, having surprising foes in the whole fight, but you persevered through all this, kept true to the science, and were committed to trying to make a change in the nation's diet. So one of the things you've mentioned that was a successful piece of the puzzle were finding people in the food industry who were sympathetic and could be in a position to do something like the person with Legal Seafoods and the Unilever Company. What are some of the other things that happened that you think were instrumental in getting to the point where we are now? For example, what role did the press play in this? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, lots of things have contributed here, and often in ways that are quite unexpected, uh, that we've had some really good partners in this. I, I must uh, mention Center for Science and the Public Interest, uh, led by Mike Jacobson, has been uh, very important because they actually created a formal petition asking U.S. Uh, US Food and Drug Administration to put trans fat on the food label. And that that was a very important step uh, uh, because once it was on the label, uh, then consumers could know that there was trans fat in the products. So it was pretty hard for most people to identify them otherwise. But it wasn't just uh, putting it on the label. Probably if uh, consumers were not aware, uh, the companies were not aware of the effects of trans fats, it might have just passed in the dark. <clears throat> but uh, when I was told by marketing people in some of the major food companies, when they did consumer surveys, they found that somewhere 60, 70, 80 percent of housewives were aware of trans fat. They did not understand it very well, but they knew there was something undesirable or bad about trans fat. And so when they had to put it on their label and they saw uh, that the uh, consumers were aware, then they took it out of their products. Again, it was, you know, it couldn't be done, couldn't be done, but almost overnight trans fats uh, vanished from most products that carry food labels. Now, how did the public uh, 
become aware of trans fat? Why were 60 or 70 percent of consumers aware of it? Uh, I, I think many th uh, things contributed. I spoke to, I'm sure, hundreds of uh, journalists, uh, especially those working for uh, the magazines that women read, like Family Circle, Ladies Home Journal. And I had been told by uh, people in the health communications area that those were the journals that women trusted for their information. And uh, therefore, I went out of the way to talk to those. And uh, there were lots of good stories that were written uh, by the people who need to, need to have that information. Uh, so there were lots of uh, cartoonists also played a great role. That cartoonists have had a great uh, time with trans fat, and that helps get the word out. So many channels, many people helping. But and it's interesting to see how this process uh, comes together in the end in ways that you don't always expect. You know, a lot of scientists feel that um, talking to the press is um, risky because things get misquoted or they're reluctant because they think other scientists are the main audience they've been wanting to talk to. You're obviously not one of, you're not a member of that group. Um, how do you feel about interacting with the press around science? In some ways, I think it's our obligation. The vast majority of our research is supported by tax money through the National Institutes of Health. And um, the public paid for that. They uh, deserve to get that information in the clearest and, I think, most direct way possible. So I think it's in part our responsibility to communicate uh, findings. Not every finding. Some of them are not important. Some of the public doesn't really need to know about. But the ones that might really affect their health, uh, I think we have an obligation to help communicate those findings. And the press is uh, a main conduit. Uh, we can't do it directly ourselves. Uh, I have found that science writers have gotten better and food writers have gotten better over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, and that, that's encouraging. Um, it's also what I found is that if I do a better job taking a few minutes beforehand to write out in a few sentences what are the key points that are really critical to convey uh, and, and try to pay a little attention, then then the message gets communicated um, more directly and, and uh, with greater fidelity that way. So it's worth, it's worth a few minutes' investment in trying to, from our side, make that message as clear and as accurate as possible. So to give us a, a sort of a worldwide snapshot of what's happening with trans fats now, um, we talked about New York City, Boston, getting rid of trans fats in the restaurants. Um, California has been considering this. You and I wrote an op-ed together on this at one point. So w what's happening around the country and around the world uh, mm -hmm. with this now? A lot is happening, um, and in various ways in different places. Uh, in this hemisphere, the Pan American Health Organization has taken on a priority uh, at Trans-Free Americas. And I was in Latin America two weeks ago, and uh, it's remarkable to see what's happening there. Chile has already banned trans fat. Actually, Puerto Rico did before any state, and that was really one uh, very proactive person in, their, uh, in the Puerto Rican Department of Health took this on as an issue and uh, educated the legislature and developed the political support. Um, I work with World Health Organization occasionally in Iran, and uh, there it, it was it was interesting that our 
uh, communications does work. Uh, people there had read our papers. The scientists were very aware of trans fats, and people were working on them. And I got an email about two weeks ago uh, from a food scientist there who sent me the results of the analyses of their new uh, ghee that's trans free. It was very high in trans fat, but they have it's like uh, ghee is to uh, uh, traditional ghee as our margarine is to butter. So it was very high in trans fat, and. Uh, they have trans-free ghee now, and they're starting into major production there. So there are some really transforming uh, changes going on. Uh, the good thing is, the nice thing about this one is that it, it's really virtually invisible to consumers, and so you don't have to go through a generational change in uh, knowledge and, and behaviors. It's basically removing a product a problem at the source. But there are other parts of the world where I don't think as much is happening. Uh, in Pakistan and northern India, trans fat intake is also extremely high because their traditional fat is ghee based on dairy fat, and they have a vegetable ghee there, and we've brought it back and measured it in our laboratories, and the trans fat content is the highest we've ever seen in any in any place. So there are places in the world where this is still a, a, a major problem, and where there's perhaps uh, there are fewer resources to invest to uh, to deal with the problem, as we're now dealing with it pretty well here, I think. Okay. Um, I'd like to end in just a moment by asking you what you think the next frontiers will be in the sort of dietary change to improve the, the population's health. And I know there's one thing we're talking about working on together that can be talked about in that context. But before we do that, are there some, what would you say the lessons learned are for you in terms of taking the science and creating social change? What are some of the key elements here that people should think about? Um, I've maybe learned a few things here. Of course, the basis uh, of this has to be, as you mentioned, strong science, and our focus really should not be di uh, distracted from uh, developing the, the strongest possible science and evidence, and we need public support for that uh, through NIH as the main channel. Um, there are a number of things uh, that have occurred to me. One is that if we're trying to uh, promote change, uh, like in this case, reduction in trans fat, uh, to use many channels all at the same time because it's really difficult to know in advance uh, which ones of them are going to be successful. But uh, writing stories, uh, editorials within both our scientific literature and uh, public uh, media is important. Uh, talking to uh, good, responsible food writers and journalists to help uh, convey information. That's very important. Uh, to be receptive to working, uh, communicating with industry, not bought out by them, but uh, talking to them is important. And finding allies there, that recognizing that industry is not monolithic, that there are some, you'll find potential allies there who can make a huge difference. And then partner with other organizations, maybe other consumer groups that are really do have a common agenda and have very different uh, resources and capabilities that we as scientists don't have. So uh, there's no single strategy, but I think if we work on a number of, take a number of different paths like that, uh, things do change. Some of them it's very hard to anticipate where the breaks will be, but if we have more hooks out, you'll catch more fish in the end. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to prognosticate. But if you look at the kind of victories that, that happen with trans fat, do you see other things coming down the road that might be in a similar category? That is, 
a robust science suggesting that certain foods or classes of foods are related to bad health outcomes and the need for some kind of a social movement and the activism of regulatory authorities, world health authorities, and things like that around a common theme. What, what would you say might be on the, row, on the horizon? We have lots of problems in our food supply. We are very, very far away from an optimal diet. Trans fat was a particularly egregious problem, uh, and in some ways it was easier to fix than some, than some of the others will be because we could go to the source and get them out of the foods in the first place. Uh, on the high on the agenda now, uh, the area we've talked about before is soda consumption or sugary beverage consumption. It's not just sodas, but that's an important, uh, very important part of that class of beverages. Uh, it is in some ways like smoking or trans fat. There's no benefits, only harms, and uh, many people are affected. Uh, and it's we've known for quite a while that soda is not likely to be a good thing, but in the last few years, the science has really strengthened greatly. We have clear evidence relating soda to weight gain, which is a huge problem in our society, and also now evidence directly relating it to risk of diabetes and uh, likely cardiovascular disease as well. So I think we have the science basis. We can really move forward strongly in that area. And in some ways, it's also for people, giving up soda is a lot easier uh, than giving up real food in, in their diet. So this is something with some encouragement, incentives, uh, good education and information, I think we can make some major progress in that area. But I would also expand that uh, category of sugary beverages to the whole bigger problem of refined starches and sugar in our food supply. That's actually the biggest piece of our food supply, probably about a third of the calories coming from refined starches and sugar in the American diet. And again, uh, there are no health benefits, direct relationships with overweight, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and that's a that's going to be a, a big task to take on, and will require to uh, really solve that uh, changes in the foods that people select. But I think we can; those changes can be changes that people will like actually when we have really good, healthy, uh, attractive, and well prepared alternative foods. You know. Um It'll be interesting to see changes take shape on those fronts. And um, I, it's hard to predict how, what the future will bring in these kind of areas because, of course, we can't predict what the science will show. But um, if one were taking odds on a scientist whose prognostications are likely to come true, my money's on you. <laughs> so it'll, be, it'll yeah. be fun to watch these things take shape. But congratulations for all you've accomplished. Mm -hmm. You've made an enormous difference in the world. My hat is off to you. And... Um, yeah, what, what a great model you are for people that can be good scientists, highly productive, address state-of-the-art questions, publish in the best journals, but also make a difference in the world. So uh, you've made a difference in my world and the world of people around me. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks, Kelly. Good to have been with you, and I look forward to um, taking on this next challenge of sodas together. That sounds good. Uh, Walter Willett is our guest today, chair of the Department of Nutrition, and Frederick John Stair, professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org, and you'll see this podcast listed, but also all the other ones that we've recorded in the past, a series of excellent guests. Thank you.